Welcome to The Staggering Truth. I'm your host, Burton Staggs. And in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most tragic, senseless murders, double murders, that I've ever had to deal with. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about the March of 2020 double murder of a beloved Benton County couple by the names of Celeste and Eugene McDaniel. What makes this murder even more horrific? They were killed by their granddaughter. Before we get started with this segment, I want to go ahead and give a graphic content warning. On Tuesday of this week, Caitlin Taylor, the accused murderer of her grandparents, was in court in Benton County for a probable cause or preliminary hearing to see if there was enough evidence to bind her case over to the Benton County Grand Jury. A preliminary hearing is when the prosecution convinces, needs to convince a judge that there is enough evidence that the person accused, if there's enough evidence for the judge to believe that there is probable cause. This is often the time that we find out some of the most graphic details of this case. I can only say that some of the things in this podcast are gruesome. And I want to go ahead and put this graphic warning out now. I want to take you back to the morning of Monday, March 23rd in Camden, Tennessee. It was just a typical morning. I remember getting a call and that there had been a double homicide in Camden. I called the sheriff. He confirmed that he had two dead bodies on a street in Camden, but the city of Camden would be the investigating agency. I learned a short time later that the deceased were an 82-year-old man named Eugene McDaniel and his 67-year-old wife, Celeste McDaniel. The one thing from the very beginning that people told me was this was just a great couple. Celeste was known for being a nurse in the area, and I don't think I can overuse how many times I was told that she was just loved. As the day progressed, we learned something pretty horrific, that their 28-year-old granddaughter, Caitlin Taylor, was the suspect. On Tuesday of this week, Caitlin Taylor was in court for her preliminary hearing. And on that day, we learned the gruesome and grisly details of this case. We also learned about some of the problems that Caitlin Taylor had. We already knew about some of these problems because of Facebook posts uh, that Miss Taylor had made and from comments that 
family members of a child that she has in Mississippi had told me about Caitlin. If you have followed me, you have seen the smiling mugshot. Um, it's made national news because Caitlin Danielle Taylor has been accused of, of killing her biological grandmother and her longtime step-grandfather. And there appears to be no remorse in the smile as she is booked into the Decatur County Jail. On Tuesday morning in Benton County, Caitlin Taylor was brought in to the preliminary hearing. One of Celeste McDaniel's co-worker, Christy Mattis, told the judge that on the Monday of March 23rd that Celeste McDaniel wasn't at work, and this was highly unusual. Miss um, McDaniel clearly was a loved person. I don't. I've said it before. I don't think I can stress it enough. But Miss Manis's testimony was extremely emotional. She said that uh, she had lost her mother, and that uh, she adored. Celeste McDaniel, and that she knew something was wrong when she wasn't at work. She drove to the McDaniel home. She told the judge and the district attorney that uh, she saw both vehicles belonging to the McDaniel at their home. The doors were locked. She became extremely, extremely concerned. You'll, I'll tell you more why soon. She called 911, asked them to do a welfare check. A Camden officer was dispatched. A second Camden officer showed up on the scene. This testimony was incredibly emotional. Um, the officer went in. He testified that he found the bodies of Eugene and Celeste McDaniel inside the home and that they were clearly deceased. The friend of the McDaniels, um, she, when the officer walked back out of the house, she said, uh, are, are they gone? Are they dead? And she testified that the officer insinuated yes and what was just touching that day was that she said that's the minute her whole world changed another question came from the district attorney and apparently celeste mcdaniel had expressed concerns to miss manis that if anything ever happened to her you know who did it and she insinuated that that was Caitlin, Caitlin Taylor. Um, apparently there had been problems between the granddaughter and the grandmother. They had apparently turned physical a few times. 
this is where we kind of learn some of the first factual-based things that Caitlin Taylor was struggling with. Um, some of the testimony is that Caitlin Taylor would question where upwards of a million dollars had gone, that she, in her mind, thought that her grandparents had taken her money, maybe from a settlement. But Miss Manis testified there was no money. If you've read Caitlin Taylor's Facebook, you understand that her mind is definitely has issues from being kidnapped by Russians to using the name Harley. You'll learn more about that later. To things like cloning. Clearly, this young lady has some mental problems. Christy Manis also testified that Celeste McDaniel had showed her a photo of what she called a crack pipe. And this is the first hint or the first suggestion legally that we get that Caitlin Taylor was most likely a drug addict. Earlier, I had spoken to a family member on the opposite side. Taylor has a child living in Mississippi that is living with the biological father's side of the family. And she made me aware of arrest and drug problems, mental health issues in Mississippi. A young man by the name of Jonathan Craven testified that he picked Taylor up on the side of the road near the intersection of Dogwood and Cherokee Avenue around 1145 on Saturday, March 21st. Craven said he noticed a woman walking down the street uh, in uh, short shorts uh, and, a, and a hoodie or a coat, uh, even to the point that he identified the shorts as uh, maybe having some pink and a Confederate flag on them. He was pretty precise in his description of Taylor. He said he picked Taylor up and that she told him she had been in a fight with her boyfriend and she didn't have anywhere to go. He said he picked her up. He, was, uh, he had a friend with him. They drove around and that uh, Taylor said she had nowhere to go. So after he drops his friend off, he takes Caitlin Taylor back to his house. He said he thought he would try to help her, and basically he didn't want to leave a young lady out in a cool morning with those clothes and uh, nothing else. He did note that Taylor had uh, a backpack and a purse. But he said they go back to his house and they talk and that he becomes a little concerned about some things Taylor is saying because he says he catches her in a couple of lies. Uh, um, apparently, he is uh, very much into the zodiac signs because he knew that Taylor's birthday and her sign didn't match up. He made a point that 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 was one of the first things he noticed and that uh, she had told him that her name was Harley. 
he reiterated a couple times to the district attorney, I, I just didn't want any problems, and I thought something was odd here. He said that he went to his neighbor's house, and he asked her to come over and uh, talk to Taylor. I almost thought, and I'm putting my conjecture in here, that maybe he was thinking, I don't want to be alone with a young lady at this time of night. The district attorney asked him about his charge because he was on probation. He didn't answer. I noticed that Taylor looked at him quite frustrated a couple times. Uh, tapped her feet a few times, and then spoke to her attorney. The district attorney asked him about his charge, and he didn't answer. That caused me to uh, do a little checking on Craven. Craven is a convicted sex offender. I believe his charge was... Uh, either statutory rape or something pled down to basically um, sexual assault, authority figure in that thing. He said he is still on probation. But he says he goes to the neighbor. Neighbor comes over, talks to Taylor. They apparently knew each other. He said that uh, the two women spoke about the grandmother. Now, he he made it clear he did not know if they were if he was she was speaking of a maternal or paternal grandmother. He said he didn't. Of course, he did not know that these horrible events had happened, so he couldn't tell. But he says that Taylor went to sleep on his love seat and he slept on the couch. He said, "I had an eerie feeling about her." kind of slept with one eye open. I noticed that caught Taylor's attention. She had a little look of, uh, it's hard to explain the look, but that morning when they wake up, he decides that he needs to go ahead and get her gone. So he basically says, you know, I need to get you somewhere. And, uh, can you go somewhere? And she says, just drop me off at the laundromat. So he takes her to the laundromat. But he does note under examination or cross-examination that she does have a phone. So she can make contact with someone. One of the important things that... Craven gives the prosecution in this is he places Taylor at the grandparents' house. He also notes that Taylor has a gash on her pinky finger. He asked her how she got the gash, and she told him that she picked up a sharp knife and cut herself. He notes that that gash is so bad, he calls it down to the bone. 
he tells her, you know, you need to go to the doctor and you need to go to the hospital. And Taylor says, okay, let's go to the hospital. Later, she changes her mind. She doesn't go to the hospital. Another thing that is important to the prosecution is that we learn that Taylor does tell Craven that her boyfriend, who she supposedly had the argument with, is Bart Johnson. This is important because in the warrant, when Caitlin Taylor was located, she was located at the residence of Bart Johnson. Bart Johnson told investigators that he picked Caitlin up. He noticed the cut. Uh, he told her, you need to get that looked at. And uh, originally, they're going to go to the Camden Hospital. She doesn't want to go there. They go to fast pace. Uh, the, the charge is too much. And then they eventually go to Camden Hospital to uh, get the cut, which is called significant uh, on her pinky finger uh, stitched up. Going back to Craven a moment about the cut on her hand, the district attorney asked if he noticed any blood on Caitlin Taylor's clothes. And he said none that he saw. And he did say to the defense that if he did see blood on her clothes, he would have associated that with uh, the cut on her hand. The next person to testify was a Camden police officer who, who responded to the 911 call for the welfare check at the McDaniel residence. He, uh, he testified that basically he arrived at the home, uh, could not see anyone. He made a decision that he would enter the house. He said he used a credit card to jimmy the door. He goes in. He announces that he's police. Uh, no one responds. He says that he finds Celeste McDaniel and Eugene McDaniel deceased. He tells the court that he used the fact that they were cold to the touch and appeared stiff and they had no pulse. He says there's a lot of blood in the house. He gives a piece of testimony that is very interesting and we'll talk about it later but he says while he's outside one of the neighbors brings over what appears to be a bullet and we'll tell you more about that shortly the next person to testify and the last was special agent joseph hudgens of the uh, tennessee bureau of investigation Hudgens says he arrives in Camden, and he goes in the residence, determines that there are deceased bodies. Based on the things that are there, he calls for the violent crime response team. Um, the That's basically the uh, forensics teams that, that you see on TV. And many things about this case is where reality 
and crime shows are totally opposite. And as we go, we're going to talk about that. Hudgens says that he's in the house. And I want to take you back to the bullet that the neighbor brings over. This is very interesting testimony. A neighbor brings a bullet to officers. They live close or next door to the McDaniel residence. She is feeding her dog. She looks in the dog bowl and sees something. It turns out to be a bullet. They use the projection rod to trace the bullet's path. They find a hole in the neighbor's house that lines up directly with a hole in the McDaniel house. We have a bullet that was fired inside the McDaniel's home that pierced the wall, that pierced the wall of the neighbor's house, went through the wall, and landed in the dog bowl. And it has nothing really to do with this case, but can you imagine if someone had been sitting in that home? Let me go ahead and warn you that this is segment is going to be a little graphic. Um, the state never asked about the cause of death of the McDaniel. The, pro- the defense does that. Hudgens testifies that they find they tr- they find out that uh, that McDaniel's are the are the are deceased, so he asked for a search warrant to search the house to to make sure that all legal bases are covered. In doing so, they realize that a third party lives in that home and is not present. Her name is, of course, Caitlin D. Taylor. Taylor is later located, as you know. She is found in the company of Bart Johnson at his home. When she is tested, or when, excuse me, when a search warrant is given, in her purse is found a purple shirt with bloodstains. When she's booked into the Benton County Jail, her shoes, I believe they're Converse, are believed to have bloodstains. Now, what evidence is inside the home? A large kitchen knife with a broken tip. A three fifty seven Magnum laying in the floor. The Magnum, Magnum is said to have seven cell, the ability to hold seven rounds. Six were in the chamber. Um, Hudgens testifies that Caitlin Taylor told him first she refused to talk, wanted a lawyer. She actually said that the lawyer she was going to hire, she lived with at one point. It turned out that that was not true. One of many untruths allegedly told by Caitlin Taylor. Almost her mind wandering. She tells investigators, she waves her Miranda and tells them that she came home 
and that her grandfather said, don't wake up your grandmother. She's in the kitchen getting a drink. The grandmother comes in. An argument starts. The grandmother grabs a knife. Taylor grabs the knife to defend herself or grabs at the knife and gets cut. She tells investigators she throws the knife down and leaves, walks away, that her grandparents are alive when she leaves. At the jail, she is uh, told that her grandparents are dead and she's going to be charged with their murder. According to testimony, her demeanor is, is doesn't really change. She's um, a little angry about it, basically saying you don't have evidence. Unlike crime shows, gunshot residue, DNA, these things take months. I've said it before. For those of you that watch NCIS, Ducky at Gibbs and Abby, it seems to all work within minutes. Taylor was tested for gunshot residue. Those tests are not back. So those things are still pending. All the tests, DNA, other tests, are still pending at this point. Now, like I said, we're going to get to the uh, graphic part of this. The state stays away from cause of death. They don't really have to prove anything except they're dead and that the probable cause is that Caitlin Taylor killed the McDaniels. The defense asked the TBI agent, could you tell us about their death? And the autopsy results are not back. That is not unusual. It, there's just a backup on those. The agent says that the medical examiner says that the, that the McDaniels are shot one time each. Then came the basically the most gruesome part of the testimony. Um, he said when he moved Celeste McDaniel, her head almost fell off. Her she was cut deeply in the in her neck, so deeply that a tip of the knife, as I told you earlier, that was missing, was found in the wound. The grandfather also suffered multiple stab wounds and cutting. Um, the medical examiner apparently believes that the stab wounds are post-mortem. There's probably, it sounds like a lot of malice and a lot of rage in this, uh, in this killing. The TBI basically wraps up their testimony by saying that they took a 357 Magnum into uh, evidence, blood stains from different parts of the house and on the wall, um, the walls or the door frames. The defense asked about other weapons in the house. Apparently, there were several other weapons. A gun is found in the study. Going back to Christy Manis's testimony, Celeste McDaniel had told her 
that she was sleeping with a gun because she was afraid of Caitlin. This, uh, this other gun seems to possibly back that up. Those weapons were not taken into uh, custody because, or into evidence because, according to the TBI, the uh, VCR believed that uh, those weapons were dusty and had not been recently fired. That pretty much wraps up the testimony. The defense basically makes some points that the state has not proven uh, that the warrants even charge Caitlin Taylor with homicide and that they had arrested her based on criminal homicide. So he asked the judge to clarify what the charge would be. The judge basically said that Caitlin Taylor was the last person to see them. She admitted that she had had an altercation with her grandmother. She had left the residence. She had told Bart Johnson and others that she had had an altercation with her grandmother. The judge makes a point that Caitlin Taylor didn't go to the local hospital to for have her injury treated. One would surmise that um, Taylor wanted to not be treated locally as uh, to be attached to this possible gruesome murder. And one of the things that I didn't tell you that I think is um, really important, I spent the biggest part of the preliminary hearing watching Caitlin Taylor. She would smile from time to time. She cried some when uh, Manis testified about her grandmother. But one of the things that really stuck out to me and will bother me for a long time is that when Joseph Hudgens, the TBI agent, was testifying about the manner of death of her grandparents, there was almost a look of disdain on her face. It almost looked like, how dare you say this? You don't have evidence. But at the end of the day, the judge bound the case over to the Benton County Grand Jury. He made the charge second-degree murder, two counts. The attorney asked for Taylor's bond to be reduced. The judge refused. She is being held in the Benton County Jail on $500,000 bond. Guys, thank you very much for listening to The Staggering Truth. I'll continue to follow this case uh, to its conclusion. I would also point you to Facebook to Pamela Mirabella of the Camden Chronicle. She's a fabulous local reporter, and uh, she has been corresponding with letters from Caitlin Taylor. So make sure to uh, bookmark the Camden Chronicle also go to Facebook and follow Pamela Mirabella of the Camden Chronicle. She is just, as I've said, a fabulous local reporter, and uh, she will have up-to-the-date things on this case sometimes when I can't have. Guys, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Staggering Truth. I'm your host, Burton Staggs. <laughs>